Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Then There Were Two, History of the World Series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitzel, as always. And Lucas, even though we are in a lengthy stretch of New York baseball being involved in the World Series, I think I'm going to have to say that this is going to be one of our most exciting ones during this stretch of episodes that we're doing. I would definitely say so. I mean, we've had a bunch of... I don't know that I want to call the last series uncompetitive because even though it was a sweep, a lot of the games were pretty close. This one, there's going to be more games to talk through, but we've got a lot to get into to set the stage, too. Yeah, and just to start it off in the National League, the Giants win the pennant! The Giants win the pennant! The Giants win the pennant! How can you start with anything else, really? Pretty much. And it's not come easy for the New York Giants. They had to make up a 13-and-a-half game deficit on the Crosstown Brooklyn Dodgers on August 11th just to force a playoff. They finished 37-7. and And this came during a season in which Monty Irvin was the National League leader in RBIs and he had 121 of those. And Lucas, why don't you go into a little bit about this Giants-Dodgers duo? I mean, remember, the Giants had a 20-year-old by the name of Willie Mays, who won Rookie of the Year, and Sal Maglia, 2.93 ERA and 23 wins to lead the National League. Do you want to talk a little bit about this duel they have? Yeah, we'll talk about it a little bit. Just to kind of lead up, you mentioned that 13-and-a-half game lead that the Dodgers had the Giants were able to erase a big chunk of that thanks to a 16-game win streak that took up a good chunk of August. They managed to get within four and a half games with just 10 days left, but the Giants won their final seven games. The Dodgers went four and six over their final 10, which gave the teams identical 96 and 58 records. Now, we're used to seeing like a one-game playoff for things like this, but the National League at the time used a three-game playoff to break the ties. So to determine how this three-game series would play out, they did a coin toss. The Dodgers won the coin toss to determine the schedule. And so I think the Giants ended up having kind of the home field advantage in the sense that they would get to play two out of the potential three. But the Dodgers winning the toss got to determine when they would get their home game. So they decided to play the first game at home with the second and third needed. That would be played at the uh, polo grounds. And... I guess the argument being, you assume you win one at home, that means you only need to win one of two at the polo grounds to be able to go ahead and get it. So in game one of the series at Ebbets Field, Jim Hearn and the Giants beat the Dodgers 3-1. to one. Bobby Thompson, remember that name, and the aforementioned Monty Irvin both homering in this game to uh, help propel them to the victory. Game two, we switched to the polo grounds, and there's a little bit of debate about whether it was this game or the following, but for one of the two games at the polo grounds, the Yankees were in attendance for the game, presumably, you know, scout their potential opponents. The Dodgers end up winning in a blowout in game two, 10 to nothing. Jackie Robinson, Gil Hodges, Andy Pafko, and Rube Walker all hitting home runs in the victory, which sets us up for a winner-take-all Game 3 that took place on October 3rd, 1951. Brooklyn ends up scoring a run in the first in support of Don Newcomb, 
Jackie Robinson singling home Pee Wee Reese. The Giants end up tying the game in the seventh. Irvin leading off with a double, bunts to third. Thompson hits a sacrifice fly that ties the game. The Dodgers respond with three in the top of the eighth. You get uh, back-to-back singles from Reese and Duke Snyder. Sal Magley, who is pitching for the Giants, uncorks a wild pitch. That gets Reese in. Snyder advances to second. Jackie Robinson was at the plate for this. He's walked. They set up a double play, and they get a ground ball off the bat of uh, Andy Pafko. But Thompson ends up committing an error. Snyder comes around to score. Robinson advances to third. A Billy Cox single makes it 4-1 to one in favor of the Dodgers and Brooklyn needing just six outs with Don Newcomb, who we've talked about in prior episodes, being the guy that needs to get just six outs to send the Dodgers back to the World Series. And he retires the Giants in order in the eighth. And then we get to a crazy, crazy bottom of the ninth. So we start off uh, Alvin Dark, the Giants shortstop singles. We have nobody on, runner on first. For some reason, you know, normally you would have set up your infield to position for a double play. First baseman Gil Hodges ends up playing behind Dark to try to guard against a potential steal attempt. Don Mueller, who's coming up to bat next, he's a lefty, by the way, hits a ball through that gap, sends Dark all the way to third. So now you've got guys at the corners, nobody out. Monty Irvin coming up to the plate. Nuka manages to get Irvin to foul out. Now, kind of the argument here from sports writer Bud Greenspan and others say that had the Dodger infield played Mueller at double play depth, the play earlier, this pop-up would have ended things. Instead, you only have one out, still men on. Double down the left field line by Lockman allows one run to score. Mueller gets into third. Mueller ends up hurting his ankle on the slide. Uh, Clint Hartung comes in to pinch run. Don Newcomb gets yanked, and so here we've got a little bit of controversy. So you have warming up in the bullpen for this Ralph Bronca for the Dodgers. You also have Carl Erskine, who we've mentioned in past episodes. Now, apparently while they were warming up, one of the Dodger coaches noticed that Erskine was bouncing his curveball short of the plate, and so he advised, hey, we should probably use Bronca, who, bear in mind, had lost six of his last decisions and gave up a home run to Thompson in game one, but really the rest of the guys, you didn't really have any good options, so you're forced to go to Bronca, and Willie Mays is on deck for the Giants at this point. Mays in game one, by the way, went 0 for 3 against Bronca, struck out twice. But Dodgers don't want to put Thompson on base, figuring maybe they'd bring in a pinch hitter for Willie Mays, which seems blasphemous now, but we remember this is rookie Willie Mays, so bear in mind with that what you will. So they decide to pitch to Thompson. So first pitch is a strike on the inside corner. The goal then, from what I guess Bronca wanted to do, was go fastball up and in to set up a breaking ball down and away but Thompson connects hits the ball down the left field line and we have the quote that you opened our uh, episode with the Giants do in fact win the pennant and are back in the World Series and we never would have heard this call if a fan had not recorded the call off of their radio because at that point in time calls were expensive to keep 
but somebody had the foresight to capture what I think today is still the most famous broadcasting call in the history of baseball. Yeah, a special thanks to one uh, Lawrence Goldberg, who asked his mother to tape record that final half inning because he was out at work. Goldberg apparently told interviewers later he was a Dodgers fan who made the tape so he could hear the voice of the Giants weep when Brooklyn won. Whoops. Well, you never know what you're going to get, but I guess it shouldn't be a surprise because Thompson hit 32 home runs on the year and drove at 101 and hit 293, so it's not like Thompson was any slouch. I mean, if anything, they probably should have put Thompson on in order to get to the rookie Mays, but I guess Mays was already building enough of a reputation. They decided to take their chances with Thompson, which obviously was a big mistake for the Dodgers, who would end up losing the pennant on the last day of the season for the third time in six years. Ouch. Yeah, that's uh, on your way to building a uh, legacy of failure there, I would say. So we go to the American League now, the New York Yankees, and this will be Joe DiMaggio's final season in the major leagues. But it's the first season for a rookie by the name of Mickey Mantle. This is the only season which their careers cross with each other. So you have some familiarity, and you also have some new guys who will be even bigger later on. Yogi Berra won the MVP award, and Eddie Lopatz won 21 games, had 2.91 ERA, and Allie Reynolds throws not one, but two no-hitters. And this is a rotation that the Yankees have had for... I guess you could say a while now because we are so familiar with these names at this point. So I think we should just run them down again. We mentioned Lopat's numbers. He won 21 games. Vic Raschi also won 21 games. And Allie Reynolds, 17 and 8. So they were appropriately called the big three and why not? We've heard these names several times before already. Nice to see they're still living up to their reputations. We had mentioned in prior episodes the whole uh, Spawn, Sane, Pray for Rain, Johnny Sane coming over to the Yankees. Now, he only goes 7-14 and 14 post a 420 ERA, so not particularly great numbers, but still you know, a nice complimentary piece to have. Uh, the Yankees did have one 300-hitter. Gil McDougal in 131 games hit 306, 14 home runs, drove in 63, stole 14 bases, which was second only to Phil Rizzuto, who had 18. We talk about the one year of overlap between DiMaggio and Mantle. And it's just, you go back again to the 1920s and it's just incredible how it seems like every time one guy is going, you have another legend waiting in the wings. You have Babe Ruth for the initial Yankee run. And then you have the intersection with Gehrig for a few years. Ruth leaves, you have Gehrig still going for a little bit. He starts to taper off. DiMaggio comes in. Now we have DiMaggio getting ready to leave. You have Mantle coming in, and you have Yogi Berra operating still with all of this, too. It's just, it's incredible. A couple more tidbits about the Yankees. Clint Quartzney is the first major league catcher to wear eyeglasses. And then here is one interesting thing for Mr. Lopat. He was negotiating his salary with Yankees GM George Weiss. And here is how the negotiations reportedly went. Weiss said, don't forget you'll make six or eight grand in series money. Lopat asked, if we don't win, we make up the difference. And Weiss said, we'll win. So there's definitely some money going on between player and GM. So 
You can only imagine what's going on between both men's minds as we begin this 1951 World Series, which is the first ever coast-to-coast televised World Series on NBC with Jim Britt and Russ Hodges on the call. A few episodes back, we mentioned how NBC was broadcasting the World Series in a few markets on the East Coast, but now the entire country gets to watch the World Series. And Lucas, this national TV audience, this initial national TV audience is going to be in for a real treat, I think. They really are, and fans at Yankee Stadium are going to be in for one of the all-time classic voices as well. This is the first World Series where Yankee Stadium's public address announcer is the late, great Bob Shepard. And, of course, Shepard is not going to be the only one on hand for the first game of this World Series, which is the 14th for the Giants and the 18th for the Yankees, the sixth meeting between the teams with the Yankees having a 3-2 advantage. Joe DiMaggio's final World Series, which ties Babe Ruth for the most with 10. Attendees include actress Lorraine Day, who is married to Giants manager Leo DeRocher, and new commissioner Ford Frick, who succeeded Happy Chandler after the owners decided not to renew Chandler's contract. And you have new National League President Warren Giles there, as well as AL President Will Harris. And Ford Frick throws out the first pitch. And this turns out to be the high watermark of the series for the New York Giants. At least I think so. Now, keep in mind, the Giants were obviously exhausted from their National League pennant run with the Dodgers. The right fielder, Don Muir, was injured. Sal Magley and Larry Jansen were exhausted. Mighty Urban later wrote, The World Series was anticlimactic. We had done the one thing we wanted to do, beat the Dodgers. And this game featured the first all-black outfield in Major League history. And Urban left Mays and Sander and Hank Thompson in right. And this game was the Monty Urban show. There's no question about that in that first inning. Urban has the first steal of home in the World Series since the Yankees' Mike McNally did in Game 1 of the 1921 World Series. And that's the seventh steal of home in series history. So he wrote later on that it was his greatest thrill in baseball. And Irvin made some plays in the field as well. He robbed Hank Bauer of a two-run homer in left field. And, of course, he wasn't the only Giants to uh, make some defensive plays that were impressive. Hank Thompson, he ends up robbing... Joe DiMaggio of a hit by making a running catch, but Thompson isn't perfect in the field. Gary Coleman hits a Texas leaguer that's bobbled, and McDougal ends up scoring. Then Irvin gets his third consecutive hit, which is a triple, but he fails to score up the rounds, retires the next two hitters. Irvin gets some help from Alvin Dark hitting a three-run homer into the lower left field stands, and then Irvin ties a series record with four hits, which come on consecutive at-bats. And then, as kind of a precursor to what was to come for baseball in the 50s and beyond, you know, you talk about that famous song, Talking Baseball, Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Mickey flies out to Willie to end game one. Talk about one-man wrecking crew and one Mr. Monty Irvin. Absolutely. Irvin's final line on the day he goes four for five, scores the one run on the steal of home. The triple, just a pretty phenomenal performance in support of Dave Koslow, who goes the distance, allows just one run on seven hits with three walks and three strikeouts in a 5-1 giant victory. So we go to game two, 66,018 is the attendance at game two. Stan Musio is among them in attendance. They placed runners on first and second with nobody out. Instead of sacrifices many thought they should do, Casey Stengel lets Joe DiMaggio swing away, and DiMaggio hits into a double play. 
he said later on, I'm bad like a guy who can't see anything at any time. And, you know, he had hit a home run earlier that day, but it was during batting practice. So he did hit a home run at Yankee Stadium in the World Series during his career. But, unfortunately, it did not count. Al Schacht was the pitcher who threw that. He had been putting on a pregame show for the fans. But the Yankees are able to pour it on. You have Joe Collins getting his second hit of the series with the home run to the lower right field stands. And then we get one of the scariest moments that you could ever see in a World Series game. So... Casey Stengel had encouraged Mickey Mantle to give it his all out in the field. And keep in mind, Mantle's only 19 years old at the time, and he's playing in the outfield with DiMaggio. So Mays hits a fly ball, and DiMaggio, it's his ball, and that doesn't stop Mantle from trying to make the catch, or at least run towards the ball. This is in the fifth inning. Mantle suddenly tumbles to the ground, falls flat on his face, uh, it turns out he had hit a drain that was in the outfield, and he lay so still that many thought he had a heart attack, or some people thought that he might have gotten shot. He's eventually stretchered off the field with an injured knee, and it was diagnosed as a severe knee sprain, and it looked a lot worse, and it played Mantle for the entire rest of his career. And there are two stories that circulate about the injury afterwards. One is that Mantle's injury occurred because he stepped on that drain cover while chasing the flower. The other story said he was forced to make an awkward stop because DiMaggio caught for the ball at the last minute. Mantle said later on, I don't know what happened. I didn't try to stop short or anything. I simply was running after the ball. My knee pops. There was no hole in the ground either. So... It's just crazy for me to think that Mickey Mantle suffered this devastating injury and he played with this pain throughout his career and he was still able to make a Hall of Fame career out of it. How was he able to do this for well over a decade, day in and day out? I have no idea. Absolutely impressive. And it makes you wonder what if a little bit. You know, if you move Mickey Mantle's lifetime and career... 50 years into the future, you give him more modern medical science. Now, you mentioned they diagnosed it as a severe knee sprain, but if we're talking his knees popping, I'm going to bet money that it was probably an ACL or something in that neighborhood. And at the time, an ACL is basically a career death sentence because we don't have the reconstructive knee surgeries in 1951 that we do today. So yeah, absolutely credit to Mickey Mantle for being able to still build a Hall of Fame career on basically one knee. I mean, that structural damage obviously hampered him. It was also kind of reminiscent of what happened to Gail Sayers over a decade and a half later when he suffered a devastating knee injury and his career was cut short, but, you know, he played a more physically demanding sport in football. But yeah, the fact that this wasn't a career ender for Mantle is nothing short of a miracle. And his father happened to be at the game and the next day afterwards, while they were on their way to the hospital, as they were stepping out of the cab, Mantle's father collapsed. And both men ended up in the same hospital where it turned out Mantle's father was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. And he ended up being dead the next spring. So I'm glad to see that Mantle's dad was able to see Mantle play a couple of World Series games because... That was it for Mantle in this World Series. I mean, we'll see more of him as we go further and further into these next several episodes. But talk about a bad break for Mantle in his very first World Series. 
arguably literally in that sense. The Yankees nonetheless able to win uh, Game 2 by a score of 3-1 to one and managed to even the series at one game apiece as we switch burrows and head off to Game 3 at the Polo Grounds. Yeah, very quickly about Game 2. Monty Irvin got his 6th hit in 8 series at bats. Then he added his 7th hit. Low pass allows 5 hits and 2 walks for the win. So we go to that Game 3. We get a then-National League record 52,035 in attendance for that game. Blanche McGraw, the widow of John McGraw, throws out the first pitch. And Game 3 has a little bit of controversy. The Giants end up winning the game by a score of 6-2. to two. But Phil Rizzuto and Eddie Stanky get involved in a very controversial play. Stanky tries to steal second, but a throw for Yogi Berra beats him. So Stanky decides, you know what, I'm going to kick this glove that Rizzuto has and try and dislodge the ball. And he does just that. He moves all the way to third base. Although it was a legal play, Rizzuto was very furious. And Irvin wrote many years later, since that time, I don't think they have spoken. And they've had this feud all these years. So... Can you talk about a player in today's game who would be so eager to try and knock the ball out of a fielder's glove in such a sense? I can imagine the tempers would be raising high and punches might even be thrown. I don't know that it would necessarily happen in the modern day, but I wouldn't write it off entirely. And yeah, if it did, you would absolutely have the benches be clearing and one of the more involved base brawls that you don't see a ton of anymore. And it turns out to be a very costly inning for the Yankees. Rizzuto did insult to injury, gets charged with an error on that. And we have five unearned runs scored in that inning. And if that isn't enough, Al Darks initially called out a play to play, but Bear drops the ball and home plate umpire Joe Paparella versus his call to safe. Lockman hits a low-line drive three-run homer to right during that inning. Vic Raschi, who was starting for the Yankees, he's relieved. And we have Woodling homering to right center field for the Yankees' second homer of the series, but obviously not enough. The Yankees lose this by a score of 6-2, to like I said. So I have to imagine that the Yankees are hot in that clubhouse right now. That uh, three-run shot by Lachman ended up knocking Vic Rashi from the game. He lasts just four and two-thirds, gives up six runs, only one of them earned, like was mentioned. So, I mean, his ERA for the series is a 208 mark, which isn't terrible, but, I mean, you give up that many unearned runs, you're not really helping your cause there. Jim Hearn pitching for the Giants goes seven and two-thirds for the win. He walks eight guys but only allows four hits, gives up just one run. Uh, Sheldon Jones records the final four outs, only gives up the one home run to Gene Woodling as the only blemish, but he gets the save as the Giants go up two games to one. By the way, the other Yankee pitcher in this game who pitches the final two innings, this is a real coincidence for those of you who are in the Chicago sports media. His name is Joe Ostrowski. That's an Easter egg if I have ever heard one. Game four is a rainout, so this series, which would have had no interruptions, does get an interruption because of Mother Nature. The first thing of game four, though, the Giants get right back to the business of being on the Yankees. 
Alan Dark doubles off the left field corner in the first inning. Then he scores on Irvin's eighth hit of the series, but Irvin is then caught stealing second. So that kills some momentum race there. Gene Woodling leads off the second inning with a blooper double that falls just inside the left field line. Bobby Thompson boots a McDougal grounder for an error. William Mace falls after making a catch, which causes Woodling to advance to third. Brown beats out a throw from short for an infield single. And Allie Reynolds actually has an RBI single to help his own cause, but he's caught in a rundown between first and second. So hitting pitchers forever, Lucas, but it's not really base running pitchers forever. So I can't really... Uh, say that pitchers are the best base runners besides even if they stayed on base they're still wearing the jackets which is uh definitely going to hamper them to some degree i would think yeah but we got a toot plan out of the deal so i can't complain and then joe dimaggio hits a two-run homer to the upper left field deck which gives him eight home runs in his 10 world series al dark hits his third consecutive double of the game the sixth which gives him seven hits for the series but he ends up stranded Rizzuto appears to be picked off heading from second to third on play, but Stanky's throw bounces off of Rizzuto, and Rizzuto scores. Irving gets his ninth hit of the series in the ninth inning, and then Willie Mays hits into a game-ending double play, which is his third of the game. So, not a spectacular series so far for the National League Rookie of the Year. I mean, I know that we have the golden sombrero for if you strike out four times in a game. I don't know if we have a name for, like, the three strikeouts in a game. But to that point, do we have a name for grounding into three double plays in the same game? That's a good question. We'll have to look that up for some time in the future. Game five, we have new St. Louis Browns manager Rogers Hornsby attendance and Philadelphia A's manager Jimmy Dykes. The first season for the A's without Connie Mack. We have Al Dark collecting his eighth hit of the series in the first inning. Irving gets his tenth hit of the series. Dark scores from first when Woodling fumbles the ball in left field. Then DiMaggio, when the Yankees start the play, he singles home Woodling for the Yankees' first run, then advances to second on Irvin Aaron left while Barron moves up to third. And the Yankees have a big blow when McDougald hits a grand slam to the left field stands, which is only the third in series history, the first by a rookie, and the first since Tony Lazari did in Game 2 of the 1936 World Series. Dark collects his fifth hit, six at-bats in the third inning in the ninth of the series, but he's stranded there. Phil Rizzuto hits a two-run homer that Barry clears the right field wall. Irving gets his 11th hit on a single in the sixth that comes to within one of a series record. Woodling robs Irving of his record-tying hit on a catch in the ninth inning. The Yankees win this one 13-1. They get 13 runs on 12 hits. This is the second five-hit win as May starts for Lopez in the series. He gives up zero earned runs. So I'd say he's just tasting that money they discussed with general manager Weiss right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it certainly helps when you get the kind of run support you did. You mentioned the 13 runs on 12 hits. We have a couple of runs scoring in the top of the seventh, one on a bases-loaded walk of Phil Rizzuto. And then new pitcher Al Corwin, who had just replaced George Spencer, uncorks a wild pitch that scores Joe Collins. You have Joe DiMaggio with a two-run double that completes the scoring in the game for the Yankees, who are now just one win away from yet another World Series championship. So, Game 6, which is DiMaggio's record 51st Series game, 
It starts off very well for Yogi Berra. He doubles in that first thing. It bounces off the right field wall. It's so fast that Coleman, who was already on base, is held up at third base. The Yankees score one run that inning. Later on, Berra has a base hit to the right field corner and invests the second. Uh, Thompson bobble. And then the starting pitcher for the Giants in that game, Dave Coslow. He ends up throwing a wild pitch move, Barra and DiMaggio to third and second, respectively. Full count with the bases loaded, Hank Bauer triples and barely misses clearing the left center field wall. So that scores three runs. We get Johnny Sang pitching in the eighth inning for the Yankees, and we have Woodling Robin, Robin Irvin of another hit. So I guess you could say Woodling has Irvin's number out there in the field. Sure seems like it. The Giants get some momentum going as they end up loading the bases. Johnny Sane is on the mound, like I said. Ray Noble is pinching for Jim Hearn, and he ends up striking out looking. So that ends that threat, and it happens on three pitches. Joe DiMaggio in the bottom of the eighth has his final career at bat, which is a double, but then he is retired at third on a fielder's choice. In the ninth inning, the Giants have three straight hits to lead off the ninth, so Johnny Sane is relieved for Bob Kazava, who is making his first appearance of the series. And the Giants hit back-to-back sack flies, and then Bauer catches a line drive on the first pitch, which was thrown to Sal Ivers, who was a pinch hitter for Hank Thompson, and... He momentarily lost that ball in the sun, but he made the catch. That ends the series. The Yankees now have 14 championships in 31 years and their third straight. So Joe DiMaggio gets the Yankees to the World Series in 10 of 13 seasons, and he goes out on a high note. Phil Rizzuto wins the Babe Ruth Award, which is given to the best player in the World Series. Now, this is not the World Series MVP award. That does not come for a few years. This is sponsored by the Baseball Writers Association of America, And had they given out a World Series MVP at that time, I'm sure that they would have overlooked Monty Irvin's stats in the series and given it to Phil Rizzuto. Rizzuto hit 320 for the series, had an on-base of 393, slugged 440, went 8 for 25, scored five runs, which was second on the team. Gene Woodling, the only guy that had more, he scored six times. Uh, Rizzuto with one home run, he drove in three. So, I mean, that's definitely a very good series. If it were me, I'd almost lean more towards Eddie Lopat. The two wins, both of them complete games, post an ERA of 0.5, allows just a single earned run over the course of those 18 innings, walks only three, only four strikeouts, but that's pretty much utter dominance of a pretty good Giants lineup. One more thing I want to say about the Babe Ruth Awards. Until 2006, they continued to give this award only to what the Riders deemed the best World Series performer. It wasn't until 2007 when they started counting the entire playoffs towards this award, pretty much their own Conn Smythe Trophy, which again is not sanctioned by Major League Baseball, but instead is given out by the Riders. So here's some more interesting stuff about Monty Irvin. He was playing in the middle of an election campaign. He was a Democratic candidate for Assemblyman in Essex County, New Jersey. Yeah, he hit 458, but you know, obviously it wasn't enough. He later wrote, I just wish that we could have had the same lap that we had down the stretch and that our pitchers had not been tired. Then I think we could have probably been the Yankees. In the end, he said the Yankees were good and they were extraordinarily lucky. So, I mean, Monty Irvin 
It's got to have one of the best performances ever by a player in the World Series on the losing team. There's no question about that. We've talked about other guys that we would give World Series MVP to from the losing effort, but a 458 batting average, you mentioned the 11 hits, only scoring three runs, but still, like a 458, 500, 542 slash line is absolutely absurd, and it's just, like you said, it's unfortunate I don't really know what more the Giants could have done short of not found themselves in that aforementioned 14-and-a-half game hole in August to begin with to the point where you need to run your pitchers ragged for two months and survive a three-game Donnybrook with your crosstown rival Brooklyn Dodgers just to be able to get to this point where you run into the buzzsaw that is the New York Yankees. We talk about how this is the end of the line for Joe DiMaggio, and here is kind of what drove him into retirement officially. So, a week after the series ended, Life Magazine published the Sky reports that the Dodgers had compiled on the Yankees because they were expecting to play in the World Series, and they would have, but for that late-season collapse. The report said the following on Joe DiMaggio. He can't stop quickly and throw hard. You can take the extra base on him. He can't run and won't bunt. His reflexes are very slow, and he can't pull a good fastball at all. And DiMaggio was reportedly devastated by this because public embarrassment was his biggest fear, and he was painfully aware that the assessments were accurate, and he was angry about it, and he ends up announcing his retirement that's December. So, can you imagine being driven to retirement in part because of what you're reading in a magazine. You know New York media is rough, but yeah, I mean, that's brutal. Well, it's not necessarily the media that did this. These are the Sky reports that the Dodgers had obtained. Sure. So there was a scout who was the one who more or less drove DiMaggio into retirement. But yeah, I guess you're right to an extent. I mean, Life Magazine probably could have chosen not to publish these, especially with the negative Sky report on Joe DiMaggio, but at that point, DiMaggio had ceased to be an everyday player for the Yankees, so maybe people felt they were comfortable enough with DiMaggio's career that maybe they could, I don't know, knock him down a peg? Yeah, maybe so. You look, though, at the overall World Series numbers for DiMaggio. You mentioned this is 51 career World Series games. He plays in 10 World Series is a nine-time champion, which is absolutely incredible. But he finishes his World Series career with a 271 batting average. And just for a point of reference, his career batting average during the regular season, 325. So, I mean, obviously facing the best team from the other league, you expect the numbers to come down a little bit. So they certainly do a 338 on base in 10 World Series, 422 slugging, finishes with eight career World Series home runs, and we have the meme at this point of all of them on the road in the course of his history. He drives in 30, and just looking at some of the where he ranks all time, we mentioned the eight home runs. Trails Lou Gehrig, who had 10 up to this point in his career. DiMaggio through 2022's World Series, which is as far as we've gotten at the time of recording this podcast, His eight home runs is tied for seventh most in World Series history with Bill Scourron and Frank Robinson, a couple of guys whose names will come up a bunch later. The 30 RBIs are fifth most, and 
it's all Yankees ahead of him. Babe Ruth with 33, Lou Gehrig with 35, and then a couple of guys that are teammates of DiMaggio's this season who will finish ahead of him by the time all is said and done. Let me just say one more thing about this. Joe DiMaggio is getting a send-off on this podcast that we cannot give Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig because Babe Ruth's career kind of ended on a whimper, and Lou Gehrig, of course, was forced to retire prematurely. But Joe DiMaggio literally went out on top. And maybe if he hadn't read that scouting report, he might have squeaked it out for another year. But as far as everyone was concerned, he could still get the job done to a pretty good degree. So I say we tip our hats to the Yankee Clipper as he is officially retired from being mentioned as a player on this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Tip of the cap to... uh... Jolton Joe on going out a champion and congratulations. So we look ahead to 1952. The Yankees are back, but the Dodgers are going to get another crack at it. So we get yet another subway series and the Dodgers have been frustrated a bunch by the Yankees up to this point. Is this the year they finally break through? You're going to have to tune in next week to find out. Okay, so for Lucas Mitchell, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you for listening to our 1951 episode of Then There Were Two History of the World series. Make sure you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe as well. We will see you next time.